Turn to the book of Judges. We are in the 17th chapter of the book of Judges. The last five chapters of the book of Judges, along with the book of Ruth, provide us three episodes from this period of history. Ruth is a ray of sunshine. (laughs) It's a bright light on a cloudy day. It shows that there were at least a few people during this period of Hebrew history that had placed principle above pleasure. But Ruth, sad to say, was the exception. For the two stories that we have tonight in the book of Judges are more indicative of the times, and they reek with unrighteousness. We're going to go through some spiritual sewage tonight. Judges 17 to 21 reveal just how far a society will deteriorate when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. You know, I like to call this the Outback philosophy. Outback Steakhouse used to have a commercial where a truckload of good-looking guys and gals, they all drive past these warning signs onto the beach. They violate the law. And then they have this fun and frolicking party complete with blooming onions and and choice cuts of steak and brewskis for everyone. And all the while, the spokesman, you know, he's chanting the motto, no rules, just right. No rules, just right. You know, once I was at Outback Steakhouse and I asked the waiter if I could substitute cheese fries for regular fries. And she looked at me like I was trying to change the U.S. Constitution. (laughs) She says, you can't do that. We can't change the rules. And I said, I thought your motto was, no rules, just right. It seems the motto only worked when it's to Outback Steakhouse's favor. This is also what happens in an amoral society. People make up their own rules. You see, society requires rules. But once you toss out God's rules, it becomes a contest to see who can garner the power so that they can make rules that will best serve their own interests. And the results become nasty and brutal, as we'll see tonight. Just consider these last five chapters in the book of Judges. The first story in Judges 17 and 18 centers around a man named Micah. I call him Mixed Up Mike. Chapter 17 shows you just how convoluted life has become. Now, there was a man from the mountains of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and on which you put a curse, even saying it in my ears, here is the silver with me, I took it. Now, the first bit of information we learn about Mike is that he steals money from his own mama. Can you imagine? He probably had a gambling debt. He was probably addicted to internet poker. And his mother said, may you be blessed, my son. May you be blessed by the Lord. Oh, my. A mother with a blind love. Hey, the only reason Mike fesses up here is because he fears the curse that his mom has placed on the stolen loot. So when he had returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, his mother said, 
I had wholly dedicated the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make a carved image and a molded image. Now, therefore, I will return it to you. Now, here it gets more bizarre. Micah's mama has dedicated this silver to Jehovah God to make a carved image for her son. Of course, you know that carved images were forbidden by Jehovah God. Carved images were a violation of the second commandment. You see, her attempt to honor God is a violation of God's own commandments. Here's her problem. She wants to serve God, but she wants to do it her own way. Then he returned the silver to his mother. Then his mother took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to the silversmith. And he made it into a carved image and a molded image, and they were in the house of Micah. Here is the ultimate oxymoron. Micah makes an idol for God. How do you make an idol for God? God is against idols. He hates idols. Verse 5, the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household idols, and he consecrated one of his sons, who became his priest. Now in the name of Jehovah, Micah constructs his own shrine, sets up his own image of God, makes his own ephod, selects his own priest. He violates every detail of the law of Moses. You see, private shrines were forbidden by God's law. Old Testament worship was to be corporate and communal. It was supposed to be carried out at the tabernacle. Nothing tangible, nothing visible was to be employed in your worship. As Jesus told the Samaritan woman, God is spirit and he is to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. And these priests, the, the Old Testament priesthood, were all to come from the tribe of Levite. These priests weren't Levite. Micah and son were from Ephraim. He violates every detail of the law. Verse 6 sums up Micah's problem. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now hear me. Evidently, there was a side to Micah that desired to be spiritual. Perhaps he sensed a deep longing for God in his heart. But rather than submit his will to God and pursue God the way God requires, Micah opted for a tailor-made religion. Micah constructed his own brand of spirituality. Here is a man who wants to be spiritual and who wants to be religious, but his spirituality has very little to do with the Bible. It's a hodgepodge of Judaism and superstition and even the occult. It's based on personal experiences and tastes, not the truth of God's word. Hey, welcome to our modern world. Every survey, every poll done today tells us that interest in spirituality is up while commitment to biblical truth is down. In their book, American Demographics, authors Semino and Lawton explain what kind of religion people today desire. They write this, it's a religion of the heart, not of the head. It's practical and personal more about stress reduction than salvation, more therapeutic than theological. 
It's about feeling good, not being good. It's as much about the body as it is about the soul. You see, people today want a convenient spirituality without moral absolutes, without ultimate authority. They want to design a religion, not biblical truth. Oh, they're happy to embrace Jesus as a potential guide or a possible helper or maybe even their friend. But Jesus is Lord? That doesn't fit into modern notions of spirituality. The Washington Post recently ran an article. It was entitled, A Church Away from Church. And it discussed the growing trend today toward establishing prayer rooms in your home. Other buzzwords were meditation seats or home altars. People called it creating sacred space within your home. One lady, she commented on the altar in her bedroom. It symbolizes an amalgam of personal beliefs and experiences and provides me with a more intimate and meaningful form of worship than any religious institution could offer. As part of her altar, she has several idols. They're goddesses, by the way. She has some Roman Catholic candles. She has some items that are sacred to Native Americans. Hey, it's mixed up Mike all over again. Today's spirituality is a quagmire of religious sentiment divorced from biblical truth. It's a heretical blend that has nothing to do with Christianity. Well, mixed up Mike's situation worsens in verse 7. Now, there was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah of the family of Judah. He was a Levite and was staying there. Now here, a real bona fide Levite stumbles into the picture. I mean, he's got Levi genes. Micah wants to gain legitimacy for his religion, so he hires a live-in priest. Verse 8, the man departed from the city of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn wherever he could find a place. Then he came to the mountains of Ephraim to the house of Micah as he journeyed. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And so he said to him, I am a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I am on my way to find a place to stay. Micah said to him, dwell with me and be a father and a priest to me. And I will give you 10 shekels of silver per year, a suit of clothes and your sustenance. 10 shekels in room and board, even an outfit. So the Levite went in. Then the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became like one of his sons to him. And so Micah consecrated the Levite. Now, who is Micah to consecrate a Levite? Again, this is, this is uh, out there. And the young man became his priest and lived in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since I have a Levite as priest. Notice Micah's faith is really nothing more than superstition. This itinerant Levite becomes a good luck charm. Oh, God's going to bless me now. I've got a Levite as a priest. Micah has hired his own personal guru, his own spiritual trainer. Sounds new age, doesn't it? Well, the whole setup was a gross violation of God's law. In fact, drop down to chapter 8, verse 31, and read our author's reminder. Chapter 8, verse 31 So they set up for themselves Micah's carved image, which he made, all the time 
that the house of God was in Shiloh. See that? Micah wanted to be spiritual, but he didn't want to be obedient to God. I'm sorry, 18 verse 31. Chapter 18 verse 31. So they set up for themselves Micah's carved image which he made all the time that the house of God was in Shiloh. Here's my point. Spirituality and godliness, they're not the same thing. I know folks who claim to be spiritual. Oh, I'm a spiritual person. But they ignore God's revelation. You can be spiritual and you can miss God. Did you know that? You can be spiritual and worship the wrong spirit. Godliness is spirituality that is obedient to God. This is the kind of spirituality I want. You know, I, I, want to be, I want to be obedient to God. I want to serve God. I want to love God. But I want to do it God's way. True spirituality, a real connection to God, can't be personalized to your own private tastes. Religion a la carte might be trendy, but it never will gain God's approval. True worship. True worship worships God the way God wants to be worshipped. Don't forget that. Well, chapter 18. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the Danites was seeking an inheritance for itself to dwell in. For until that day, their inheritance among the tribes of Israel had not fallen to them. The Danites had grown impatient. And they had set out to find a place to settle. You see, the Danites had a weight problem. You might think, I too have a weight problem, but the Danites had a W-A-I-T problem, a weight problem. They weren't willing to wait on God. You know, one of the first lessons we should learn as Christians is to wait on the Lord. God's will is best. And if we wait on God's best, the wait is always worth it. Well, so the children of Dan sent five men of their family from their territory men of valor from Zorah and Ishtal, to spy out the land and search it. They said to them, go search the land. So they went to the mountains of Ephraim to the house of Micah and lodged there. Now while they were at the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. They turned aside and said to him, who brought you here? What are you doing here? What do you have to do in this place? He said to them, thus and so Micah did for me. He has hired me. And I have become his priest. So they said to him, please inquire of God that we may know whether the journey on which we will go will be prosperous. And the priest said to them, go in peace. The presence of the Lord be with you on your way. So the five men departed and they went to Laish. Now the tribe of Dan had actually been allotted a track of land along the southern Canaanite coast. Land occupied by the Philistines. This might be another reason why they wanted to move. (laughs) It was occupied by Philistines. And it was much easier to flee than it was to fight and take the land. It was less risk just to move out than to move on and trust the Lord. You know, sometimes that's the case. Sometimes it is a lot easier to just run from the challenge rather than it is to accept it and trust the Lord to overcome it. 
Well, they saw the people who were there, how they dwelt safely in the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and secure. There were no rulers in the land who might put them to shame for anything. They were far from the Sidonians and they had no ties with anyone. Well, they get up to this little town called Laish and they think this is perfect. Laish was on the northern border between Israel and Sidon, north of the Sea of Galilee. Laish was kind of up in the mountains. It was near the headwaters of the Jordan River. Actually, when we visited Israel a couple of uh, last time back in May, we went to the Dan Nature Reserve. And it's this beautiful nature reserve. There's all these flowing streams. There's this lush vegetation all over. This was the city of Laish right there on the northern border of Israel. And the Sidonians, they live much further westward, over on the coast. And so pretty much the city of Laish was isolated and alone. The land was fertile, it was prosperous, no marauding tribes that would come and attack. Perfect place to settle. Well, in verses 8 through 10, the spies return, and they convince the other Danites to move with them. Verse 11, And 600 men of the family of the Danites went from there, from Zorah and Ishtal, armed with weapons of war. They traveled northwest. Then they went up and encamped in Kirajerim in Judah. Therefore they called that place Mahanadan to this day, that is, west of Kirajerim. They passed from there to the mountains of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who had gone to spy out the country of Laish answered and said to their brethren, Do you know that there are in these houses an ephod, household idols, a carved image, and a molded image? Now therefore consider what you should do. So they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite man, to the house of Micah, and greeted him. The 600 men armed with their weapons of war, who were of the children of Dan, stood by the entrance of the gate. Then the five men who had gone to spy out the land went up. Entering there, they took the carved image, the ephod, the household idols, and the molded image. The priest stood at the entrance of the gate with the 600 men who were armed with weapons of war. Now when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household idols, and the molded image, the priest said to them, What are you doing? And they said to him, Be quiet. Put your hand over your mouth. And come with us. Be a father and a priest to us. Is it better for you to be a priest to the household of one man or that you be a priest to a tribe and a family in Israel? When the priest tries to stop these thieves, they buy his devotion. And notice their offer. Is it better for you to be a priest to the household of one man or that you be a priest to a whole tribe? Hey, priest, come with us and you can pastor a bigger church. You see, this is a step up for the Levite. This is a promotion. He wasn't committed to Micah. He was just a hired gun. He was just a priest for sale. He was open to the highest bidder. You know, they say... Every man has his price. That was certainly true of this Levite. He sold out. You know, it's one thing when the people do what's right in their own eyes. But the tragedy about this period of time is it was also indicative of the leaders. You see, not even the priests were truly committed to the call of God. It's sad today when pastors seek a better offer. 
a more lucrative job rather than God. Where do you want me to be? Rather than seek the call of God, they seek the better offer. How many pastors have accepted a call to a smaller church? (laughs) So the priest's heart was glad. And he took the ephod, the household idols and the carved image, and took his place among the people. Then they turned and departed and put the little ones, the livestock and the goods in front of them. And when they were a good way from the house of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house gathered together and overtook the children of Dan. And they called out to the children of Dan. So they turned around and said to Micah, what ails you that you have gathered such a company? Sound like a bunch of hillbillies, don't they? What ails you? So he said, you have taken away my gods, which I made, and the priest, and you have gone away. Now what more do I have? How can you say to me, what ails you? And the children of Dan said to him, do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry men fall upon you and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Now, as I said earlier, every society requires laws. Rules are inevitable. But when you throw out God's laws, then it's left up to the people in power to make the rules. In other words, the law of the jungle goes into effect. It's now might makes right. We took these idols because we could. We're stronger than you. Then the children of Dan went their way. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned And he went back to his house. And how tragic to worship a God that can be stolen. (laughs) Do you worship a God that can be stolen? You know, here's the problem with today's feel-good, tailor-made, personalized religion. Religion a la carte. It doesn't survive the tough times. It doesn't make it through the storms of life. The storms steal your faith. Only faith tied to the solid rock, Jesus Christ, can withstand life's storm and stress. Well, the rest of the chapter tells us how Laish was defeated and how the city was renamed to Dan. And this Levite, his name is Jonathan, served as Dan's own personal priest. He was the best priest money could buy. All the while, God's priesthood ministered in Shiloh. Designer religion might make you feel good, but it never pleases God. And here is the problem with wrong worship. It produces wrong living. You see, ungodliness always leads to unrighteousness. Fail to follow God and you'll fail to do what's right. When a person believes wrong, they eventually behave wrong. Or it's been said, when God goes, anything goes. And the final grisly story in the book of Judges shows just how true this is, how utterly immoral, ungodly people eventually become. And this last story, I got to warn you. It's going to make the hair stand up on the back of your neck. Chapter 19. And it came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel 
and there was a certain Levite staying in the remote mountains of Ephraim. This was a different Levite, by the way. He was also living among the tribe of Benjamin. He took for himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. But his concubine played the harlot against him and went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there four whole months. Now, in ancient times, it was common for men to keep concubines. You remember Hagar was Abraham's concubine. In essence, a concubine was a legal mistress. She was legally bound to the man, but with fewer privileges than a wife. She was considered his property. Certainly this was never sanctioned by God, just as bigamy or, or divorce is you know, not sanctioned by God. But it existed, and this man was a part of it. He had this concubine. Well, then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back, having his servant and a couple of donkeys with him. So she brought him to into her father's house, and when the father of the young woman saw him, he was glad to meet him. Now his father-in-law, the young woman's father, detained him, and he stayed with him three days. So they ate and drank and lodged there. So far, so good. Sounds like a sweet tale of a restored marriage or concubine marriage or whatever you call it. But, but, it came to pass on the fourth day that they arose early in the morning and he stood to depart. But the young woman's father said to his son-in-law, Refresh your heart with a morsel of bread and afterward go your way. So they sat down and the two of them ate and drank together. Then the young woman's father said to the man, Please be content to stay all night and let your heart be merry. And when the man stood to depart, his father-in-law urged him, and so he lodged there again. Then he arose early in the morning on the fifth day to depart. But the young woman's father said, Please refresh your heart. So they delayed until afternoon, and both of them ate. And when the man stood to depart, he and his concubine and his servant, his father-in-law, the young woman's father, said to him, Look, the day is now drawing toward evening. Please spend the night. So the day is coming to an end. Lodge here that your heart may be merry. Tomorrow go your way early so that you may get home. For two days now this father-in-law has managed to hold on to his little girl. That's what he's doing. He just don't want to let her go. He's stalling her husband's departure. Finally, enough is enough. He decides to make a break. Verse 10. However, the man was not willing to spend that night. So he rose and departed And he came to opposite Jebus, which is Jerusalem. Now, Bethlehem to Jerusalem, it's just a few miles. And so they hadn't been on the road very long. With him were two saddled donkeys. His concubine was also with him. They were near Jebus, and the day was far spent. And the servant said to his master, Come, please, and let us turn aside into this city of the Jebusites and lodge in it. But his master said to him, We will not turn aside here into a city of foreigners who are not of the children of Israel. We will go on to Gibeah. Oh, it's going to be safer for us to spend the night among fellow Israelites. Oh, is he in for a surprise? So he said to the servant, Come, let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night in Gibeah or in Ramah. 
And they passed by and went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. They turned aside there to go in to lodge in Gibeah. And Gibeah was just north of Jerusalem. And when he went in, he sat down on the open square of the city, for no one would take them into his house to spend the night. Verse 16, Just then an old man came in from his work in the field at evening, who also was from the mountains of Ephraim. He was staying in Gibeah, whereas the men of the place were Benjamites. Remember, the Levite was also from Ephraim. And when he raised his eyes, he saw the traveler in the open square of the city, and the old man said, Where are you going, and where do you come from? And so he said to him, We are passing from Bethlehem in Judah toward the remote mountains of Ephraim. I am from there. I went to Bethlehem in Judah. Now I'm going to the house of the Lord. He's headed for Shiloh now to worship at the tabernacle. After all, he's a Levite. He has some duties. But there is no one who will take me into his house. Although we have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for myself, for your female servant and for the young man who is with your servant, there is no lack of anything. Now, this should have been a clue that something was wrong in Gibeah. When there is no hospitality among God's people, a people who have been shown such hospitality by God, there is something terribly amiss. I think when you walk into a church, I think there should be a certain hospitality, a certain welcomeness. Boy, if we've been welcomed into the family of God, who are we not to welcome people into our midst? And the old man said, Peace be with you. However, let all your needs be my responsibility. Only do not spend the night in the open square. And we're about to find out why that's a bad idea. So he brought him into his house and gave fodder to the donkeys. And they washed their feet and ate and drank. Verse 22. As they were enjoying themselves, suddenly... Certain men of the city, perverted men, surrounded the house. And they beat on the door. And they spoke to the master of the house, the old man, saying, Bring out the man who came to your house, that we may know him carnally. These were homosexual rapists. These were violent men. Sexual, perverted men. Their conscience had been seared. Natural sexual intercourse with a woman no longer satisfied them. They were controlled by their perversion and by their violence. But the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brethren, I beg you, do not act so wickedly, seeing this man has come into my house. Do not commit this outrage. Now remember, in ancient times, hospitality was a sacred trust. Hospitality was serious business. A house guest became the God-given responsibility of his host. But this guy, (laughs) he goes overboard because he shouts out to the rapists, Look, here is my virgin daughter and the man's concubine. Let me bring them out now. Humble them and do with them as you please. But to this man, do not do such a vile thing. Now, I got to tell you, custom or no custom, hospitality or no hospitality, what kind of a man throws his own virgin daughter out to a gang of ruthless rapists just to save his own skin? This is a twerp. He's a coward. He's a slime ball. Verse 25. 
But the men would not heed him. So the man took his concubine and brought her out to them, and they knew her, and and that's a biblical euphemism for sexual relationships, and abused her all night until morning. And when the day began to break, they let her go. This Levite was no better than his host. He had less love for the concubine than that man had had for his own daughter. You see, here's a clue as to why this concubine probably ran off from him and went back to Bethlehem. You wonder why she did that in the first place? It's probably because this guy had been neglecting her and abusing her for years. Again, imagine the callousness and the cowardness of this man, this Levite, the supposed man of God. He grabs the girl he's supposed to love. He throws her out to pacify this mob of sexual predators. Savages spend the whole night gang raping this woman. Only when the sun comes up does the pack break up. You know, it reminds me of what happened not too long ago in New York Central Park. A group of teenagers went wilding, as they called it. They went on a wild rampage of mayhem and anarchy. And when an innocent jogger crossed their path, the poor lady was gang-raped and brutalized. Not much has changed in the last 3,400 years. Remember the phrase, when God goes, anything goes? We see it today. Well, verse 26 tells us, Then the woman came as the day was dawning and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was till it was light. And when her master arose in the morning and opened the doors of the house and went out to go his way, there was his concubine fallen at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. And notice this man of God's great compassion And he said to her, get up and let's be going. But there was no answer. The woman is dead. She's been raped and murdered while he slept. And so the man lifted her onto the donkey and the man got up and went to his place. Now on the way home, this atrocity, this terrible crime begins to soak into this guy. He turned into Gibeah because it was an Israelite city. Never in his wildest imagination did he think that such a brutal and such a violent crime could be committed by his own brothers. We're told when he entered his house, he took a knife, laid hold of his concubine, and divided her into 12 pieces, limb by limb and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. A very vivid telegram, I might add. He dismembers the corpse, he packs the pieces on his donkey, and he turns it loose toward the rest of the nation. Such a terrible crime should not be hidden. People need to know. Verse 30, And so it was that all who saw it said, No such deed has been done or seen from the day that the children of Israel came up from the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, confer, and speak up. He got their attention. Mission accomplished. The nation was appalled and alarmed at the savagery 
of this brutal crime. Chapter 20. So all the children of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba. Now, now Dan was the northernmost city in Israel. Beersheba was the southernmost outplace. And so from Dan to Beersheba was basically a proverbial way of saying from north to south. And we'll run across this over and over again. From Dan to Beersheba, in other words, from north to south, all of Israel, as well as from the land of Gilead, which were the tribes east of the Jordan River. And the congregation gathered together as one man before the Lord at Mizpah. And the leaders of all the people, all the tribes of Israel, presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God. 400,000 foot soldiers who drew the sword. Now the children of Benjamin heard that the children of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. The perpetrators, remember, were Benjamites. And apparently they weren't invited to the meeting. Well, then the children of Israel said, Tell us, how did this wicked deed happen? So the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, My concubine and I went into Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin, to spend the night. And the men of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house at night because of me. They intended to kill me, but instead they ravished ravished my concubine so that she died. And notice the spin he puts on the story. He tells them the truth. He doesn't mention anything about his own cruelty, does he? He doesn't say he threw her out to the mob. Tells them kind of half the truth. And so I took hold of my concubine, cut her in pieces, and sent her throughout all the territory of the inheritance of Israel because they committed lewdness and outrage in Israel. Look, all of you are children of Israel. Give your advice and counsel here and now. Something needs to be done about this. What do you suggest? So all the people arose as one man saying, None of us will go to his tent, nor will any turn back to his house. But now this is the thing which we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot. We will take ten men out of every hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, a hundred out of every thousand, a thousand out of every ten thousand, to make provisions for the people that when they come to Gibeah and Benjamin, they may repay all of the vileness that they have done in Israel. So all the men of Israel were gathered against the city, united together as one man. Then the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What is this wickedness that has occurred among you? Now, therefore, deliver up the men, the perverted men who are in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and remove the evil from Israel. But basically, he's giving them a chance to save their own necks. He doesn't want all the Benjamites to to go to battle just for this one city. The grievance is against Gibeah, not the whole tribe of Benjamin. But the children of Benjamin would not listen to the voice of their brethren, the children of Israel. Instead, the children of Benjamin gathered together from their cities to Gibeah to go to battle against the children of Israel. And isn't it tragic? Whenever there is a gruesome, perverted act There always just seems to be somebody who wants to step up and defend the guilty party. Isn't isn't that always interesting? Here it's the children of Benjamin. In our day, it's the ACLU. Or Planned Parenthood. Or the people of the American way. Or so forth. And from their cities at that time, the children of Benjamin numbered 26,000 men who drew the sword. Besides the inhabitants of Gibeah who numbered 700 select men. 
And among all this people were 700 select men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss. They could hit you on a dime. Now, besides Benjamin, the men of Israel numbered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All these men were men of war. Now, you'd think 400,000 battle-ready troops would overwhelm 26,700 Benjamites. But a couple of factors even out the battle. First of all, Gibeah was a very remote, mountainous city that was easily defensible. And the Benjamites, they had these 700 left-handed slingshot sharpshooters. Say that 10 times fast. And as the Israelites would climb the hilly terrain, those left-handed snipers could just kind of pick them off one at a time. So it was really a more even battle than you think. In verse 18, civil war in Israel breaks out. Then the children of Israel arose and went up to the house of God to inquire of God. They said, which of us shall go first to battle against the children of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah first. So the children of Israel arose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to battle against Benjamin. And the men of Israel put themselves in battle array to fight against them at Gibeah. Then the children of Benjamin came out of Gibeah. And on that day cut down to the ground 22,000 men of the Israelites. Oh boy, Benjamin wins a surprising victory. And the people, that is the men of Israel, encouraged themselves and again formed the battle line at the place where they had put themselves in array on the first day. Then the children of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until evening and asked counsel of the Lord, saying, Shall I again draw near for battle against the children of my brother Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against him. And so the children of Israel approached the children of Benjamin on the second day, and Benjamin went out against them from Gibeah on the second day and cut down to the ground 18,000 more of the children of Israel. All these drew the sword. And why did God allow Benjamin to win these ter- first two rounds of the conflict? I don't know. We're not sure. Here's a theory. Perhaps Israel's numbers had made them a little overconfident a little proud, a little self-sufficient, and God needed to humble his people before they realized that how much they needed his intervention and his power if they were going to be triumphant. Sometimes God has to humble us that way too, doesn't he? We lose a few battles in the skirmish so that we can trust in God and eventually win the war. Well, then all the children of Israel, that is all the people, went up but came to the house of God and wept. And they sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening. Now they're getting serious. They're fasting. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And so the children of Israel inquired of the Lord. And the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, stood before it in those days saying, Shall I yet again go out to battle against the children of my brother Benjamin? Or shall I cease? And the Lord said, Go up for tomorrow I will deliver them into your hand. This time, Israel employed some strategy. Then Israel set men in ambush all around Gibeah. And the children of Israel went up against the children of Benjamin on the third day and put themselves in battle array against Gibeah as at the other times. And so the children of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. They began to strike down and kill some of the people 
as at the other times in the highways, one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah, and in the field about 30 men of Israel. And the children of Benjamin said, They are struck down before us as at first. But the children of Israel said, Let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. So all the men of Israel rose from their place and put themselves in battle array at Baal Tamar. Then Israel's men in ambush burst forth from their position in the plain of Geba. And 10,000 select men from all Israel came against Gibeah. And the battle was fierce. But the Benjamites did not know that disaster was upon them. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. And the children of Israel destroyed that day 25,000 100 Benjamites, all these drew the sword. So the children of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. And the rest of the chapter gives us details about the battle. Here's what happens. Israel sets an ambush. A battalion of Israelis draw the Benjamites out of the city. While another unit takes control of the city of Gibeah and sets it ablaze. At first, the Benjamites think that this is a repeat of the prior battles. We got them on the run. And so they're chasing them down the highway. And as soon as the retreating Israelites turn and they see the smoke from the fire of the burning city, they then turn back on the Benjamins that have been drawn out of the city and they slaughter them. It creates a panic among the Benjamites and it ensures their slaughter and the victory won by Israel. Verse 47. But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimon. And they stayed at the rock of Rimon for four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the children of Benjamin and struck them down with the edge of the sword from every city, men and beasts, all who were found. They also set fire to all the cities that came, they came to. But remember, there's 600 men now down at the rock of Rimon, 600 survivors, Benjamite survivors. Now the men of Israel had sworn an oath at Mizpah, saying, None of us shall give his daughter to Benjamin as a wife. That, that was when they were real angry. We're not giving them our daughters. They swore an oath. Then the people came to the house of God, and they remained there before God till evening. They lifted up their voices, and they wept bitterly, and said, O Lord God of Israel, why has this come to pass in Israel that today there shall be one tribe missing in Israel. They're starting to feel sorry for them now. So it was on the next morning that the people rose early and built an altar there and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. The children of Israel said, Who is there among all the tribes of Israel who did not come up with the assembly to the Lord? For they had made a great oath concerning anyone who did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. And the children of Israel grieved for Benjamin, their brother, and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel today. The tribe of Benjamin was 600 men shy of extinction. And the refugees were down at the rock of Remnon hanging out. And Israel is, is remorseful. I mean, they're thinking, wow, you know, we're, we're 12 tribes. You know, we're we're going to wipe out a whole tribe. There, there'll be no more tribe of Benjamin. We'll, we'll be 11 tribes from now on. It, it, you know, it'd be like, us going over and wiping out everybody over in Alabama. It used to be 50 states. Now we're just 49 states. Only 600 rednecks from Alabama. And they're, they're down there in Tuscaloosa, you know, hanging out on a rock. And, and, you know, we start feeling sorry for them and all. Israel cries out. 
What shall we do for wives for those who remain? We want to see them repopulate. We, we want to see, you know, Alabama come back to life over there. Seeing we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them our daughters as wives. And they said, what one is there from the tribes of Israel who did not come up to Mizpah to the Lord? If you remember, they said, everybody doesn't join us. You know, if they don't join us, then we're going to slaughter them. Was well, there anybody who didn't join us? There was one missing city from the assembly there in Mizpah. And in fact, no one had come up to the camp from Jabesh Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were counted, indeed, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead was there. So the congregation sent out there 12,000 of their most valiant men and commanded them, saying, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword, including the women and children. And this is the thing that you shall do. You shall utterly destroy every male and every woman who has known a man intimately. So they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man intimately, and they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Now, see what happens when people make up their own rules? This gets crazy. When people make up their own rules, it becomes more and more difficult to tell the good guys from the bad guys. That's what's going on here. I mean, who's doing anything right here? Nobody. Verse 13. Then the whole congregation sent word to the children of Benjamin who were at the rock of Remnon and announced peace to them. So Benjamin came back at that time and they gave them the women whom they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh Gilead and they and yet they had not found enough for them. There were 600 men. There were only 400 virgins. They're 200 wives short. And the people grieved for Benjamin because the Lord had made a void in the tribes of Israel. Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives for those who remain since the women of Benjamin have been destroyed? And they said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe may not be destroyed from Israel. However, we cannot give them wives from our daughters, for the children of Israel have sworn an oath, saying, Cursed be the one who gives a wife to Benjamin. But they've got a plan. Hey, man will always have a plan. When you reject God's law, when you fail to seek the Lord, that means you've got to come up with your own plan. And this is where we get ourselves in trouble. When we come up with our own plan rather than following God's plan. Here's Israel's plan. Then they said, In fact, there is a yearly feast of the Lord in Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east side of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Lebanon. Therefore, they instructed the children of Benjamin, saying, and this, this gets wild, Go lie in wait in the vineyards and watch. And just when the daughters of Shiloh come out to perform their dances, then come out from the vineyards, and every man catch a wife for himself from the daughters of Shiloh, then go to the land of Benjamin. Men, if you're concerned for your daughters, be careful when you let them go to dances. In other words, hey, you go out, just hide in the bushes along the road. And when the girls come out and they start dancing, 
just pick out a babe and then jump out and grab her. Take her to be your wife. Grab a wife. That's really how Kathy and I met. But <laughs> just kidding. Then it shall be when their fathers or their brothers come to us to complain that we will say to them, be kind to them for our sakes, because we did not take a wife for any of them in the war. For it is not as though you have given the women to them at this time, making yourselves guilty of your oath. You hear what they're saying? (laughs) They're saying, look, you didn't break your vow. You said you vowed not to give them Give your daughters to the Benjamites. You didn't give your daughters to the Benjamites. They just took them. So you kept your vow. See see what happens when everybody does what's right in their own eyes and little twisted situations you get in? And the children of Benjamin did so. They took enough wives for their number from those who danced, whom they caught. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and they rebuilt the cities and dwelt in them. And so the children of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. They went out from there, every man to his inheritance. Which brings us to what was promised this morning. And I know that's why many of you are here tonight. That all important top 10 list. The top 10 biblical ways to find a wife. And you'll want to jot these scriptures down where you can go back and research them and, and, uh, and look them up yourself. Top 10 biblical ways to find a wife. Number 10, we just read it. Judges chapter 21. Go to a party and hide. <laughs> when the women come out to dance, grab one and carry her off to be your wife. Number 9. Hosea chapter 1, this was Hosea, find a prostitute and marry her. That's biblical. If you're following Hosea, it's biblical. If you're one of my sons, it's not biblical. Number 8, Exodus 2, verses 16 to 21, this was Moses. Find a man with seven daughters and impress him by watering his flock. Number 7, Deuteronomy 21. Find an attractive prisoner of war, bring her home, shave her head, trim her nails, give her some new clothes, then she's yours. <laughs> Just go to the Deuteronomy point and read it. It's right there. Number six, Ruth, chapter four, verses five through ten. We'll read about Boaz next time. Purchase a piece of property and get a woman as part of the deal. That was Boaz. Number five, Genesis chapter two, verse 19. This was Adam. Have God create a wife for you while you sleep. And note, this will cost you a rib. (laughs) Number four, Genesis chapter 29, verse 15 through 30. This was Jacob. Work seven years in exchange for a woman's hand in marriage. Get tricked into marrying the wrong woman. Then work another seven years for the woman you wanted to marry in the first place. Two for one. Number three, Esther 2, verse 3 and 4. This was King Ahasuerus. Become the emperor of a huge nation and hold a beauty contest. The winner becomes your wife. Number two, Judges chapter 14. This was Samson. When you see someone you like, go home and tell your parents, 
I have seen a woman. Now get her for me. If your parents question your decision, simply say, get her for me. She's the one for me. That was Samson. And then the number one way to go out and get a wife, this is my favorite, by the way. 1 Samuel 18, verse 27. This was David. Cut off 200 foreskins from your future father-in-law's enemies and trade them in for his daughter's hand in marriage. The top 10 biblical ways to find a wife. There you have them. Or, or, if you don't like, if you're if you single guys, if you don't like any of those ideas, just pray and trust the Lord. All right? Okay, good. Well, the best way to describe tonight's study is what a mess. Can you imagine a more sordid mess? And verse 25, the last verse, we need to read it. The last verse in the book of Judges sort of sums it all up. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Because everyone did what was right in his own eyes, the nation was plunged into confusion and chaos and carnage. But aren't you glad that we have a king that his name is King Jesus. And he has not left us to guess at life, to just wing it, to just make it up as we go. Jesus has left us with the Word of God and with the Spirit of God. And that is enough to lead us in the ways of God, the right way. Understand, Jesus knows better how we should live our lives than we do. So let's follow him. Let's be subject to our King Jesus.